may be seated. If I haven't met you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here and, and very honored and excited to have the opportunity to teach God's Word to you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and start turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. It is a big day in the life of our church. As Jordan mentioned, um, right now a partner church of ours is beginning in Santo Domingo. Um, we're so excited uh, for that uh, work, that new work. Also today, uh, a group of Iranian refugees began a church in uh, Turkey, um, and uh, a church that we've been able to help out. They actually named, we didn't have any say over their leadership or whatever, but we are supporting them and loving them through ministry partnerships. They named their church Christ Covenant, uh, and they even took our logo, which we were happy for them to take. But uh, we're just so grateful for um, that work that is also beginning today, these refugees beginning a new church uh, in Turkey. Um, it's also a big day today. There's a lot of things going on. Some of our parents right now are over at the Collective for our parent brunch tonight at 4 o'clock. Don Whitney is going to be here leading a prayer conference. If you've kind of gotten into this new year and you've been thinking, man, I, I want to kind of get my spiritual disciplines in shape. I want to pray more. I want to study my Bible more. I, I really encourage you to come tonight at four o'clock. It's over the collective, which is just a few hundred yards away from here. Um, Don's written many books. He's been a friend of our church for a long time. One um, that we have available for you today is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It really kind of helps teach you what does Bible study look like? What does memory of Scripture look like? What does prayer uh, look like? Uh, different spiritual disciplines in your life. Who could be helped by this? Who's like, you know what, I, I really would like to think more about my own kind of spiritual life and spiritual growth. Can we, okay, I see a hand over here. I don't know if I can get it to you. We, we run that back there, man. Uh, and so, and then the other one, and this is really what Dr. Woody's going to be going over tonight, is praying the Bible. This is really how to use the Bible as a guide for your prayer. A lot of us, uh, or, or a few of us maybe were here four years ago. Doc, Dr. Whitney actually went through the same material. Uh, it, it has been, I know, revolutionary to many people's prayer lives. Who could be helped by this book? Okay, I got this one. Ready? Nice. All right. And then all of those books and several more are available over um, at our Connect area. You can drop by on the way out. So that's 4 o'clock tonight. It includes dinner, uh, and I hope you can come. Hebrews 10. We're just looking at one verse today, but a very powerful passage. The author of Hebrew writes these things in verse 24 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've read a number of articles recently about loneliness. Uh, loneliness is on the rise. People are talking about a loneliness pandemic. And, and this began before the pandemic. Um, and so sociolo sociologists and therapists, all different types of folks have written articles. This is a big kind of topic of conversation. I read an article in the Harvard Magazine that defined loneliness, I think it's an interesting definition, as the gap between the social connections that you would like to have and those that you feel you experience. So 
It's the gap between the kind of social connections that you wish you had, that you want to have, and the ones that you're actually experiencing, the one that you actually do have. And it's interesting that this rise in, in loneliness, and there's also been a lot of articles about this, uh, that's, that's gone on in the world, really coincides, and, and I'll say this, with the rise of different types of media uh, and, and the different types of kind of personalized media. There's been a lot of articles that you know talk about from when smartphones really started to take hold in the culture, loneliness kind of went up. And, and I think that there's some relation there, and this is not a hit job on smartphones or media, but I, I do think it's interesting. Again, this is not just social media. This is kind of the rise in social media, yes, but different types of media. There's a lot more options of media out there. There's more movies. There's more short films. There's more YouTube channels. Uh, there's more podcasts. There's more news outlets. There's just a rise in all sorts of media going on. And again, I, again, not a hit job on media. I like media. I, I read the news. I, um, I love watching movies. I, I enjoy these things. I'm grateful for them. But it's interesting. You know, the word media comes from the Latin medium, which means something in the middle, something in, that is in the middle, uh, the, the, something that, that creates a gap, if you will. I think it's very interesting that the definition of loneliness is a gap in social connection, the social connections that you wish you had and the social connections that you actually do have. And it coincides with the rise in media, which means a gap, something in the middle, something that is actually creating space and distance. Now, it's no surprise that people would be drawn to media kind of relationships. You know, it's also been said that the more pe more time people spend engaged with this kind of media, the less time they spend in real, actual, social, or interpersonal kinds of relationships. But again, it's no surprise that people would be drawn to kind of these kinds of what I'll call media relationships. After all, media relationships are kind of easy, right? They're, they're always reaffirming. You, you can always find the media that, that reaffirms whatever it is that you believe. You can find the media that makes you feel special, right? You can present yourself. I mean, even like the thing about social media, you can always present yourself really good in a great way. You don't, you know, whenever you post a picture on social media, you choose the best one, right? You choose the one that presents you in the best light. Media doesn't disagree with you. If it does start to disagree with you, you can shut it off. You know, you can, you can find a new outlet. You can start watching a different channel. You can start reading a different paper. Interpersonal relationships are harder. People do disagree with you. Sometimes they see you when you're at your worst. Sometimes they know things about you that you know aren't very good. Interpersonal relationships, you put yourself out there. You make yourself vulnerable. Sometimes people don't accept you. Sometimes that, that can be a very scary thing to do. So it, it's, it's, no, it's no surprise that people are drawn to media kind of relationships. But these are the kind of relationships that ultimately aren't fulfilling people. Uh, they're not making people feel known. They're creating an even bigger gap between the kinds of relationships that people think they should have and those that people actually do. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, this idea that the Christian life 
To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, necessarily calls you to relationship with other believers. The Christian life is not an isolated thing. It is a communal thing. It's personal, right? We have a personal relationship with the Lord, but as we have a personal relationship with the Lord, he draws us in. He draws us in to live out this life together. And this can be kind of uncomfortable sometimes. As we're living life together, we're called to love one another. Again, that sounds great and nice until you realize that love implies sacrifice. Love implies not being just concerned about yourself, but being concerned about the other person. We saw in the second week that we're called to confess our sin to one another. So rather than just to present yourself in the best possible light, only putting your best pictures out there, the Bible actually says, put your worst stuff out there. Like take the worst stuff about you and tell it to other people. We looked at, (coughs) in the third week, living in harmony with one another. Not just considering yourself, not just being the center of the story, but, but considering others, living in harmony with them, considering their part, considering their gifts. Last week, we looked at an incredibly hard command. Restore one another. You're called to restore one another. When, when someone's down, when someone's cast out, you who are spiritual, build them back. Well, that's incredibly hard and sacrificial. But in all of these things, I think we're seeing something. How, how different the life of a Christian really is than kind of the current of the way of the world. But I hope you're always seeing something that maybe this is actually how we were designed to be. Maybe this is actually how we were designed to live. This week we're looking at another very important command, and this will be the last uh, one of these one another's that we're looking at. We're coming back to this series in the summer, uh, but we're going off to something different next week. But this, this command that we saw in Hebrews 10, provoke one another. Now, that's an interesting command, provoke one another. It, it says in the text that I read in the ESV, stir up one another, which is maybe a nicer way to say that. But the, the Greek uh, is perioxismos, which I think more literally translated is provoke. Stir up's not a bad translation, but I wanted you to kind of hear this. Get them fired up. <laughs> provoke one another. Fire one another up. Now, provoke, I think we can think of it as a negative command. You don't want to be provoked. But, but this is talking about it in a positive way, a way. Stir them up. You could actually translate it. It was used to translate it as in like riding a horse, to spur a horse, to, to stir the horse along. When I read this, I immediately thought of a halftime speech. You all know Blake, one of our pastors here. You know, Blake, before he came on staff at Christ's Covenant, was a basketball coach. He was a college basketball coach. Blake Rogers, college basketball coach. And uh, I can imagine old Blake. Halftime of the game, the team's a little down. They hadn't been playing their best. They're a little sluggish. And Blake walking in there and giving them, giving them a word, you know, giving them a halftime speech, spurring them along, stirring them up. Get out there and win. Get out there and fight. That's what this command is. Provoke one another. Stir one another along. Give one another halftime speeches, right? Get them out there. Make them, make them play hard. Make them fight. And there's enormous power when you're in a community like this, a community that is given to provocation of one another. 
So four things that I want to think about today as we look at this text. Where do we do it? Where do we provoke one another? How do we do it? How do we provoke one another? What are we to provoke one another toward, or to what are we provoking one another? And then finally, why? Why is this so important? So let's start here at the beginning. Where? Where does this happen? Where do we provoke one another? Well, the answer comes in verse 25. Provoke one another to love and good works, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This kind of provocation to love and good works, to a life that is pleasing to God, it happens when Christians come together, when Christians gather don't neglect this. Don't neglect the meeting together with one another. On Thursday night, we had the spotted cow, and we talked about our topic for the spotted cow was rhythms. We talked about what are the good spiritual rhythms that need to be present in your life. And we had actually five spotted cows all over the city, and it was great. But at our spotted cow, one of the things we talked a lot about was a very simple rhythm, but a very important one, and it is this, corporate worship. You need this rhythm in your life. Is this rhythm present in your life? Don't neglect this. Don't neglect the gathering. There is a kind of provocation that happens in the gathering. And again, you're not just here to hear from me. You're here to hear from one another. You need to be here. You need to consider as you are here how to stir one another along. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't command us don't neglect consuming content every week. It doesn't say that. Now, consuming content is good. Listening to a podcast or watching a service online, those are good things. But you haven't obeyed this command if you've done that. Now, this is the, no, don't neglect the meeting together, the gathering together. That is a different kind of provocation. That is a different kind of stirring that happens. Now, Christians have always been given to a rhythm. And I want you to hear this. This is the Christian life. This is the church. The church has always been given to a rhythm of gathering and scattering. Just like we breathe. We gather and scatter, right? There's a time to breathe in. And that's what we're doing right now. We are gathering. We are being stirred along. We're reminding each other of the truths that we believe. We're worshiping the Lord. We are together a living display of the saints of God. And in a little bit, not long, just a few minutes, hold on. If you're ready to go, it's, we're still got about 30 minutes, but it's coming. We're going to scatter. And when we scatter, the hope is that we scatter, filled up in the Lord, encouraged in the Lord, to go out, and that's a good thing too, to go out and live as ambassadors for the Lord in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, to go out with love and good works, to go and do the things of the Lord. And as you do that, the gospel goes forward through your life. Now, I would hope that our rhythm is this, that we scatter so well, we scatter with so much fervor that our little lives would be stewarded and used for the things of the Lord, that when we gather again, when you get to your community group, mine's on Wednesday night, and when you get to your community group, you'd be so exhausted. Like, I got to get around. 
some other believers. I need to be encouraged. My faith is weak. I need to be spurred along. And then you get with your community group and you pray for one another and you study God's word together. And all of a sudden you're encouraged. You're provoked again. And then you go out and scatter again. And you go and love people and you give your lives to the things of the Lord. And you do it in such a way that you're like, by Sunday or by when you meet some friends to pray together or whatever the next gathering is, you're just, oh, I'm exhausted again. I've got to get around other believers. I need to worship with other believers. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Gathering and scattering. And what it is saying here is, don't neglect this. Don't neglect this. If you're not gathering, as I say here, the better we gather, the better we'll scatter. And the better we scatter, the better we'll gather. If you're not gathering, you're not going to scatter very well. And if you're not scattering very well, you're not really going to gather well. Is this true of your life? Don't neglect this. This provocation is what we need. So that's where, where do we get provoked? It's when we gather together. But the second one is how. How do we do this? How do we really do this? And I love this idea. I want you to get this today. This speaks to the point of Christian thoughtfulness that I spoke of a few weeks ago. How do we spur one another along? How do we provoke one another? And here's the word. We consider one another. Consider how to spur. Consider how to provoke one another toward love and good deeds. Consider. And this implies that you actually know people. This implies that you actually know them and how to spur them and how to consider them. You're concerned with how they are like. You know the way I naturally provoke people or naturally try to stir people along is how I like to be stirred along or how I like to be provoked. That's how we always naturally live. But that's not what this says. It doesn't say stir one another along in the same way you like to be stirred along. It says, no, consider them. You know, I've had to learn this. I've had to learn this in my Christian life. I've had to learn this in my marriage. You know, phrases like, it's time to get your game face on, or phrases like, this is no time for whining, or phrases like, you just need to suck it up. These work really well for me. If you want to spur me along, any one of those phrases will, will get me going. They do not work that well for Paige, okay? I've had to learn this. I can't, I can't spur her along toward love and good deeds in the same way that I like to be spurred along. I can't, I can't bring correction in the same way. It, it just doesn't work. It just evokes something that's not good. Consider the other person is what this is saying. What's going to encourage them? What's going to spur them along? What's going to move them to the Lord? Not just what do you like to do. There's, a, there's actually a way to, to provoke people that's actually disobeying this command because you're not considering the other person. I've had to learn this in the workplace, right? I, there are some people that work at Christ's Covenant that have the same work pattern and habit that I have, and I like those people. They're easy to lead. There's other people that have very different work habits, and they're harder to lead. They're, they're harder to instruct. It's not that they're any less productive than I am. It's just they work differently. They're a different person. Consider, give thought to one Another, are you really considering one another? And I think this is a great question to ask. Like, who are you considering? <laughs> who are you provoking? Who are you considering? 
And you know when I get good at this? You know when I'm pretty good at this? And I think this is the most practical thing I could say is when I'm given to praying for other people. I would almost say this. I have this little phrase up here. Our, our ability to really consider one another in a God-focused kind of way is heavily related to the people that we're praying for or that we are praying for one another. The more I pray for people, the better I am at considering them, the, the better I am at just knowing what's going on. Some of this, I believe, is spirit-led. Some of it just may be thoughtfulness toward the person. But the more we're praying for one another, the better we are at priesting for one another. I want you to hear that. There is a Christian urge. There is a Christian um, ideal of priesting, of being a priest. Now, some of you may have grown up in a Catholic tradition. You hear that and you're saying, well, what, is, what does that mean? He's saying I have to be a priest? No, this, this idea of being a priest is not just for, as we see in the New Testament, a small set of the church. It's actually for all of the church. The way that the New Testament talks about the church is that we, all of us in Christ, would be, as the Bible says, a kingdom of priests. The Bible says this in 1 Peter. That you would be a kingdom of priests. You know what a priest is? A priest is someone who stands in the gap who's an intercessor, who's an intermediate, who makes an appeal to God on behalf of man, who makes an appeal, who, who cares for, who puts their life on the line for others. Here's the question. If you're in Christ, you're called to be a priest. <laughs> you're called to be priesting for people. So who are you priesting? Who are you considering? Who are you standing in the way for? Who are you praying for? Who are you pleading for God to God for their behalf for? Is this true of you? This is the command. And we actually see it in the text. Look at verse 21. It says, since we have a great high priest in the house of God. This is Jesus. Since Jesus has priested for us. He's gone in the gap for us. He's made himself uncomfortable for us. He's prayed for us. He's appealed to God for us. Since Jesus has priested for us, since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then verse 24, since we have such a great high priest, let us consider how to stir one another toward love and good deeds. It's saying this, I'll say it simply. Since you have a great priest, you be a great priest. Since, since someone has priested so well for you, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now called to priest, to intercede for, to stand in the way of one another. Who are you priesting? Who are you considering? Who are you provoking? Are you in a community like this? Are there people like this in your life? Who's priesting for you? Who's caring for you? And I just said the members of our church, I think our elders take this very seriously, this call, but it goes beyond our elders. How are you priesting for one another? Third question, to what do we provoke one another? So where do we provoke as we gather? How do we provoke as we consider one another? To what? To what do we provoke one another? Well, it says, of course, love and good works. Love and good works. But is this just kind of a general love and a general good works? 
No, it's, it's love and good works that are directed in a Godward way. Love toward the things and toward the people that God loves. Love toward the work that God is doing. Doing work toward the things that God is doing. And this idea has, every, has everything to do with what you're worshiping. What you're provoked toward and how you're provoking people, it has everything to do with what you are worshiping, with what is at the center of your life. You are all worshiping something. You are all giving yourself to something. There is something in your life that you believe to be ultimate, and you are directing your life, and you're looking to be provoked toward whatever that is. This has everything to do with what you're worshiping. You know, many of you know that I, I like the secular author David Foster Wallace, and he writes, he writes a lot about this. He, he wrote in one place, I think this is very powerful, he's talking about our tendency toward worship, and he, and he said, worship power, a lot of people are worshiping power, worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid, you'll need more power, right? If you have worship power, you always need more power over others to keep fear at bay. Who's going to take over my kingdom? Who's going to take power away from you? You always need more power to push away that fear. He says, worship your intellect, right? I'm a smart person. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You don't, as you don't know as much as, as you wish they thought you knew, and so on. And, and you, could, you can so on, right? Worship relationships, right? Some of, some of us are, we worship relationships. I have this relationship. If you worship relationships, you'll be bad at relationships because you'll put way too much pressure on people. If you're, if you're worshiping your spouse, you'll need your spouse to be perfect. you never really be able to love them. They have to just fit some ideal you have. If you're worshiping your kids, you'll, you'll, you'll crush your kids because you won't let them to be them. They'll have to be whatever ideal you've set forward for them. If you're worshiping money, you'll never have enough of it. You'll always need more because it's your identity. It's your purpose. And again, and so if you're, if you're worshiping, a lot of people worship their narrative. Yeah, there's a lot of young people here. Watch out for this. A lot of young people worship their narrative. And if you're worshiping your narrative, your story, then you always have to be doing something awesome because that's who you are. All of this is related to what you are worshiping. David Foster Wallace goes on. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship it's not that they're evil or sinful. Now, this is Foster Wallace. We know that they actually are. To worship anything but the Lord is sinful. But he says it's not they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're, they're our default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day. Getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware to that's what you're doing. That's what's so dangerous about these things is you slip into these forms of worship in an unconscious way. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. And then he defines, here's the kind of freedom that the world harnesses. It says the freedom to be lords over our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. The question of what we are 
provoking one another toward has everything to do with what you're worshiping. All of this, the idea of provoking is, is grounded on the idea that you actually care, <laughs> that you actually love God, that, that you're actually worshiping God and you care about the people that God loves and you care about the things that God cares about. If you're worshiping power, then you will only love the people that make you more powerful. You'll only do work that gives you more power. You'll never love people that make you less powerful. You'll never love work. You'll never do work that doesn't add to your power. If you're worshiping comfort, you'll only love people that make you more comfortable. You never make yourself really uncomfortable for other people. You never do work that really makes you uncomfortable. But if you have any other idol in the place of God, you, you won't actually really be able to love people or to do the work of the Lord. You'll always be looking for the next PR opportunity. You'll always be looking for the thing that's just going to bring you more. All of this is presupposed on what you are worshiping. Do you actually love God? Do you actually know God? It's the only way to actually love the people that God loves. It's the only way to actually do the work that God is doing. You know, much of American Christianity, I want you to hear this, much of American Christianity isn't Christianity at all. For some people, all your Christianity is, is a family tradition. You know, you had a family vacation spot, you got a family piano that's been in the family a long time, you got a family Bible. It's just a part of your family. It's just nostalgia for some people, Christianity is a part of their politics, right? It's like the Bob Dylan song, God on our side. I was taught and brought up here, the laws to abide. And the land that I live in has God on its side. If, if, if Jesus is for your political positions, then that makes it a lot more powerful, right? For some people, Christianity is what I like to call cozy moralism. Your Christianity is just nothing more than cozy moralism. You like the Christmas service, you know? You like to be able to say, I'm praying for you. You need a little moral structure. But it's just cozy, uh, moral. You like to think, well, I'm going to heaven someday. But you don't know the Lord. When Jesus came, his life was like this. He, he went and blew up all of these false understandings of what it really meant to follow him. You know, he went to people. Think about Jesus what he said about family. And he said people that wanted to follow him, but they were concerned with their family, he said to them, look, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, even your own life, you can't be my follower. And what he is saying there is it's not a proactive hate. What he is saying there is, look, if I'm not ultimate, if you're not willing to let your family have some sacrifice for me, then you're really not my follower. He came into a world that desperately wanted him to be some political leader, right? Jesus is going to take on the Romans. Jesus is going to give us political power. And Jesus kept saying, no, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is different from this world. And then when the Romans did capture Jesus, where did all those people go? They totally abandoned him. I think about the people that liked the cozy moralism, like the rich young ruler. I've, look at all these things I've done for you, Jesus. I obeyed this, I obeyed this. And Jesus said, well, what if you really sacrificed for me? What if you take all you have and give it to the poor? 
And the rich ruler couldn't hold up to that. That's not what he was into. How do you know that you're really a Christian? It's when Jesus says to you, I want to, I want to be more important than your family. I actually want you to sacrifice your family. I want, I want your family to feel sacrificed for following me. How do you know that Jesus is really God and not just some figment of imagination? It's when, he's, when he disagrees with your politics. When you see something in Jesus that, that kind of cuts against the political figure that you like, who are you going to follow then? How do you know Jesus is just not your blankie, your cozy moralist? It's when he actually asks you to sacrifice for him. And in those instances, when you're willing to say, look, even more than my family, Jesus is ultimate. Even more than my politics, even more than my comfort, Jesus is ultimate. That's when you know that you really know God. That's when you know that this has really impacted you. And that's when you start to really love the people that God loves, to really love the work that God is doing. I always say this, you know you're a Christian when it gets personal, when Jesus disagrees with your politics, when Jesus is hard to understand, when Jesus asks you to sacrifice, when Jesus is not cozy, and you follow him then, that's when you know that he's real, that he's Lord, that he's true in your life. And that's when you love the things that he loves. That's when you love the work that he's doing. And look, we get to see examples of that all the time. I think of, I think of Becky Carney and Rachel Warhurst in our church that lead a Bible study. They're young mothers. Any of you guys been a young mother? I never have. But if you've been a young mother, it's exhausting. You're taking care of your children, and they're always needy, and they always need you, and their house is a mess. You know what these girls do? They open their home. They bring people in. They study the Word of God together. That's not comfortable. That's not easy. There's no power in that. I think of a guy like Chip Johnson who volunteers with our student ministry. You ever hang out with middle schoolers? There's no power in that. There's no comfort in that. No, but he actually knows God. And therefore, he loves people that God loves. He loves the work that God is doing. I think of people like Latanya Gates, who lives in Grove Park. What a, what a hard place to live. And she gives herself to that community over and over and over again. Why? Because she loves God. She loves the work that God is doing. I think about Manuel Sanchez, who started this church today, who moved from comfortable life here in Atlanta, Georgia, to Santo Domingo, to give himself away, to, to take this huge risk and start this church. Who does that stuff? Why would you do that stuff? You do that stuff because you actually know God. It's the, Christianity is not just some family tradition thing. It's not just a political thing. It's not just a cozy moralism. No, it's real. And when you know God and love God, you start to love the people of God and love the things of God. You see God manifest in these things. And, we, and as we live in community and stir one another along in these things, we see it more and more and more. So that is, we've looked at where we do this. We've looked at how we do this. We've looked at to what we do this. But, but lastly, why? Why is this so important? It's interesting. This is a command. You consider, right? It's not, it's not like it'd be a good idea to, you know, Consider. You consider. You do this. You stir one another along. 
This should be true of every Christian. That's what I'm saying. You are called to be a priest. You do this. And then it's couched with this warning. Look at verse 26. It says, in a sense, it's saying if we don't do this, if we don't consider, if we do neglect meeting together, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a warning. Listen. <laughs> Listen, this is important. Don't neglect one another. Don't, don't neglect your responsibility to be stirring one another along. Don't neglect your call to be stirred along. You need to be stirred along. It's a warning. You know, I read an article recently about the Grand Canyon. In 2021, there was actually more deaths in the Grand Canyon than any other year in recent years. And uh, it was just an interesting article. But if you ever go to the Grand Canyon, you know what? You know how most people die in the Grand Canyon? It was only 18 people that died in 2021. Um, but that's up. Usually the average is 12, if you're interested. But you know why people die in the Grand Canyon? You, you'd think well, it was like heat exhaustion, right? And people do die of heat exhaustion. But the number one reason that people die in the Grand Canyon is selfies, okay? And what people do is, you know, they stand there on the edge and they got their selfie stick or they're taking a picture with their friends and a gust of wind comes and it blows them off and they die. Now, if you go to the Grand Canyon, as you're walking down in, there's signs everywhere. There's signs that there's so many of them, it's almost patronizing, okay? Like this sign, it's a little patronistic. It's like, I know what happens if I fall off the side. But thanks for showing me a picture of it anyway, you know. They're basically saying, look, don't be an idiot. Don't stand too close to the edge. You might fall off. Wind comes. You might die. And yet, every year, people die. People die of heat exhaustion. Another thing, too, is you go to the Grand Canyon, it says, do not go past this point unless you have like four liters of water or whatever it is. There's all these signs like, don't, don't, don't mess with this thing. It's serious. Read the signs. When you come across a warning in Scripture, listen to it. Don't go too close to the edge and don't neglect this. Don't neglect this. You're called to gather. You're called to provoke. You're called to be provoked. Are you willing to be provoked? Are you coming with the desire to be provoked? Do you come with that posture at all? You know, you show up to the gathering saying, Maybe I can teach somebody something here today. Or do you come saying, I mean, Lord, teach me. Stir my heart. Give me the heart of Christ today. You know, Coach Blake, I guarantee if you said, Coach, who do you like coaching? You know, who, who are the kids that really list? Who are the kids that you really enjoyed coaching? He'll say, I enjoyed coaching the, co the kids that wanted to be coached, that wanted to learn, that were hungry to become better basketball players. Is that how you come to the gathering? I want to be like Jesus. I want to be stirred along. I want to be provoked. Is that the posture that you have? Are you open to this? I was so grateful the other night we had the spotted cow. I was talking to Josh Youssef afterward. Josh, who's an elder here, who's been in ministry many years, seminary trained. He's a wonderful follower of the Lord. And you know what he said? I talked to him afterward. You know what he said? He said, I learned so much from these guys. 
He told me about this thing that Taylor Stagg had told him. He said, Taylor Stagg said this thing, and it's so blessed me. And Taylor Stagg's, you know, maybe not 20, but 18 years younger than Josh. And, you know, younger in his faith, and he's just coming to be provoked. He wants to be stirred along. Is that how you are? Is that the kind of posture that you have? Do you love the people of God? Do you love the work of God? Are we provoking one another toward this? And you know why this makes so much sense to Christians? Is because this is exactly what Jesus does to us. Jesus could have canceled us. He could have forgotten about us, but he doesn't. You know what Jesus does for you? You know why Jesus came? Because he considered you. Jesus, the Lord, considered you. And he said, how can I stir them along? How can I draw them in? And what Jesus has done for you on the cross, and this is such a powerful idea, it's not that, it's not that you, the Christian life is not that we put our best before the Lord and say, I hope it's good enough. No, the idea of the, Christ, of the Christian life is this, that Jesus considered you not when you were at your best, but when you were at your worst. It's not your best things that, keep, that keeps you away from God. It's your worst things that keeps you away from God. And that's where Jesus ran in. And he said, let me bear that burden. Let me take on that selfishness. Let me take on that shame. Let me take on all of that. Jesus meets us at our worst. He considers us at our worst and loves us and suffered for us and died for us. And if that's happened to you, if you've been considered like that, if you've been loved like that, that will provoke you to be like that and to consider others and to love others and to love this work that God is doing. Let's think about these things as we pray. Father, I do ask that your grace would be present in this moment in such a way that these truths would be real. You would increase our faith. We would see more fully the fullness of Christ that we would be provoked, we would be stirred along toward love, toward good works, that we would live the life of our Lord, and that we would look to him, Lord, not as perfect people, but as people in great need of his grace, knowing that he considers us, not when we're at our best, but even when we're at our worst, and that he loves us, and he's called us to good works. He's called us to actually be his hands and feet and to live out his, his work on earth. So Lord, give us grace to do this. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.